That's everything. Fantastic. Hebrews 7. Let's turn there. We're picking up this week in verse um, 11. Um, your bulletin says 11 to 15. It's actually 19. That was my mistake. I think my, my finnegers hit the wrong keyboard uh, number. So verses 9 through 11. I'll read through and then we will, um, we will uh, pray and then study. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when a priest, another priest arises in the, the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word today, you would enable us, Lord, to, to understand You'd illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit that the text would speak to our hearts, that we would understand you and your ways ever more better, and that our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, would grow ever more. Amen. So we are in Hebrews 7. It's not an easy chapter. We have some technical stuff that we've been dealing with and that are coming up. One of the uh, joys of teaching expositorily, uh, teaching verse by verse through the scriptures, is we don't get to say, oh, Hebrews 7, Melchizedek, I'll give that a miss. We have to kind of proceed through. And so we, we, uh, we hope that this, this understanding, while we know from what the writer has told us, this is, this is solid food, this isn't milk, this isn't necessarily supposed to be easy, but it's important doctrine nonetheless. And I think it's good that uh, many of the things I occasionally say and refer to, that you get to see some solid biblical evidence for many of these things. So what we've been seeing in chapter 7 is we had last week our introduction to Melchizedek, that he was this character who shows up in the book of Genesis. He is the king of Salem, almost certainly the um, the early name for Jerusalem, or Jerusalem as we say, um, and he was the king there, but he was also priest. And he was a priest ministering, like priests do, uh, on behalf of his fellow man before God. He was the intermediary, if you like, between God and man. And this is prior to the giving of the law. This is prior to the giving of the law. And with the Mosaic law came all the rules and regulations about priesthood. And there was the rules of descent that we've spoken about, that they had to be descended from the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron. And, uh, and that was a requirement of the priesthood. And what Melchizedek in Genesis teaches us, what he teaches us is that there was 
a concept of priesthood, and there was a priest, uh, a priest of God, before the time of the law. Priesthood didn't begin with the law, it happened beforehand. But with the law came the Levitical system, the animal sacrifices that we are so familiar with from the scriptures. And we see in the first part of chapter 7, as we saw last time, that um, Abraham considered Melchizedek to be greater. And therefore Melchizedek is not someone who can just be brushed aside as a bit player, but he is someone of great importance. He's someone who, who blessed Abraham and who Abraham gave tithe to. And as a result of that, he's considered to be important. And then in Psalm 110 verse 4, which is quoted again today in our passage today, in Psalm 110, this mysterious figure who has not been mentioned biblically since the book of Genesis is suddenly mentioned in the context of Psalm 110 that the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk more about that today. And so here we have... Uh, Jesus, who is our high priest, and he is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that theme continues on today. And so we'll look then from verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, uh, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Okay, so I realize we're going to have to break things down carefully here and, and, and try and simplify them as much as we can. But basically what's being stated here is this, that if the Levitical priesthood, if the system of priesthood in the Old Testament called the Levitical priesthood with all the sacrificial system, if that priesthood had been able to attain perfection, I'm going to talk about that word in a minute, if it had been good enough, then there would be no need for a Melchizedekan priesthood to start up. There would be no need for another high priest. And there's a few words here we need to focus on to understand what's going on. Firstly here, perfection. Perfection, I said this to you already in Hebrews, it's a, it's a problematic word for us to translate often. In Greek, the word often has connotations of simply completion or even merely maturity. Something coming to fruition, coming to completion, coming to an end. Whereas in English, we tend to use the word perfection in a more limited way. We tend to use the word perfection to mean that something is 100% right without any form of error or blemish, even remotely. Totally perfect. But in Greek, the word had a looser meaning than that. And it was often the sense of completion that was, um, that was intended. But either way, what is being said in verse 11, I think, is very clear. And that is this, that the Levitical priesthood and the law that it comes with, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the Levitical priesthood couldn't complete things. It couldn't perfect things. God's purpose could not be accomplished by the Levitical priesthood. God could do what he wanted through that, but it couldn't do more than that. It wasn't enough in and of itself. It was insufficient. It was not perfect in that regard. It didn't bring God's plan for humanity to completion. It had a plan, it had a purpose, but it didn't come 
It didn't uh, bring the entirety of God's plan to completion. It was limited. The other thing to note here in this, uh, this first verse is it says the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people receive the law. Some folks get a little confused on this point in that they're like, well, the law came first and then Levitical priesthood. If the law wasn't given, then the priesthood wouldn't have existed. But the word isn't meant that precisely. The word is meant in the sense of the, the law taught the priesthood. And all it's really saying is that the law and the priesthood are inextricably linked. You, you can't have the Mosaic law without having the priesthood. Because so many of the laws were laws concerning the priesthood. And you can't have the priesthood without the Mosaic law because the priesthood is commanded in Mosaic law. The two are linked together. And that's going to be really the main point of, that he's making in this passage. And so, if the law and the priesthood together had been able to perfect, complete the work of God, we wouldn't have had a need for another priest of a different kind. It's interesting here, in, in Greek there's two words for another. There's the word another that typically, not always, these words tend to overlap sometimes, but typically means another of the same kind, and then another word that means another of a different kind. And the word here is another of a different kind. In other words, we have another priest now, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and he is a completely different priest than the priesthood under the Levitical system. So, the conclusion from our first verse, just trying to keep it simple each step as we go through, the conclusion of the first verse is this. If the old covenant law priesthood system was good enough, then we would have kept it. It wouldn't have come to an end. The implication is, is it wasn't good enough, it wasn't able to perfect the work of God, and therefore it has come to an end. And that implication will be made more clearly in a moment. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now I've taught this so many times, I've taught you guys so many times this, one person in particular got very upset about it um, and decided that public slander was the way to go. I want to be really clear with my words this morning, okay? My position is summarized very nicely in verse 12, which is this, that because Jesus is high priest, and he is not a Levitical high priest. He's not part of the Old Covenant system. He's a Melchizedekian high priest. That means that the law that requires a Levitical priest can't be in effect anymore. And it clearly says here in verse 12, when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. Right? We had a Levitical priesthood. That has now changed. We have a Melchizedekian priesthood. We had an Old Covenant Mosaic law. We no longer have an Old Covenant Mosaic law. The two are parallel. That's the point that's being made. Now, I want to be very clear. When I say that the law is no longer in effect, I mean, firstly, and I say two things. Don't, don't worry when I say the first one, because the second one is the balance. But firstly, it means, it means the whole law. 
Christians historically have been fond of separating the law into categories. You know, that this is, this is just civil law and this is ceremonial law and, and, and these laws are sort of eternal. But the Bible doesn't make those distinctions. The Bible always talks about the law as, as, as one self-contained unit. Here is the old covenant law. Old covenant is done and the law is done. It always speaks in those terms. And the confusion means that Christians believe that there is a Sabbath today and they change the day even though the Bible doesn't. It, it stretches into the realm of tithing. It stretches into all sorts of other things. Where we try and take the Old Covenant and we say, we, you know, uh, wearing your prayer tassels, don't want that. Um, you know, eating bacon, no, we'll have, we, we don't want that either. We want to have our bacon. Um, but, oh yeah, Sabbath, we'll keep that one. Uh, oh, but killing people, if they don't keep the Sabbath, we'll get rid of that. And really, the Christians are picking and choosing from Old Covenant law. My position is very simple and very biblical. The Old Covenant law is over. It's finished. And yes, that includes the Ten Commandments. But fortunately, under the New Covenant, nine of the Ten Commandments are restated. And the only one that isn't is the keeping of the Sabbath. Which is a good job. I think you're all pleased if we don't have a Sabbath, because otherwise you'd all been stoned for being out yesterday doing whatever you were doing. So, but just to clarify, the doing away with the law means the old covenant law. The new covenant, and we're going to talk so much more about this in the coming weeks as we get into chapter 8, the new covenant comes with law as well. A lot of the new covenant law, portions of it, are, see are seemingly the same as old covenant law. As I said, nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the new covenant. Some of the commandments are actually greater in the old covenant you were to love your neighbor as yourself in the new covenant you're to love one another as i jesus have loved you that's a lot harder it's kind of been intensified and there are new commandments and that that weren't in the old covenant and there are old commandments that are no longer in effect but it's easiest for us to understand that the old covenant system has come to an end and the priesthood speaks really clearly to this. You want to have an old covenant? You want, to, you want to say the Sabbath is still in effect? I guess you start with a Levitical priesthood then. Better start making sacrifices in the temple. Oh, there is no temple. Gee, I wonder why that is. You know, God has ordained the system to come to an end, and you can't separate the two. But to be abundantly clear, there are laws under the new covenant. I once got accused of being antinomian, which is an insult that is designed to say that I don't believe in any law. Oh, yeah, Christians, just do whatever you like. There's no law for you. That is not my position even remotely. But we need to obey Scripture, and there are commands under the New Covenant, and we all know there are commands in Scripture, and we need to keep them. But we don't keep Old Covenant laws on the basis that they're in the Old Covenant, because the Old Covenant and its law and its priesthood has come to an end. I hope that's clear. I hope that's really, really abundantly clear. And... Um, I think, you know, not only am I not antinomian, I think that most Christians are far too lax about the observing of the laws that we do have. I'm almost the other way on regard, with regards to that. But um, certainly there is no basis for the keeping of old covenant laws. The old covenant was a covenant that was made with a group of people, Jews, of whom I am not one. It was a covenant that was there for a limited period of time that has now come to the end with the death of Christ. 
and we are no longer under it in any way, shape or form, and if you're not a Jew, you never were. So, verse uh, 12 is is, uh, specifying for us that this change in the priesthood means a change in the law as well. For, this is the why of of the previous verse, for the one whom these things are spoken, that's Jesus, belonged to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So this is pretty simple, I hope. You had a problem if you put together all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Because we're told in the Old Testament... And last year at the conference that we had, Arnold Fruchtenbaum went through this with us, that there is the narrowing of the messianic line. Initially, we know that the Messiah is going to be a man, and then we understand that he's going to be a descendant of Abraham, and then he's going to be a, specifically a Jewish man, and by the time we come to the end of the book of Genesis even, we know that the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Later on in the Bible, that's limited to the family of David, and he's going to be of Davidicus descent. But we know he is going to be of the tribe of Judah. And then we have an issue in this, in that in Psalm 110 and verse 4, we're told that the Messiah is going to also be high priest forever, under the order of Melchizedek. Because he is going to be, as we saw last time, he is going to be like Melchizedek, both king, which the Messiah was always spoken of in terms of being a king. The Messiah is going to be king, but the Messiah is also going to be high priest. Now you've got a problem. With Psalm 110, you've now got a problem. If the Messiah is going to be from the tribe of Judah, and the Messiah is going to be a priest... How can he be a priest? Because the priest only is going to be under the order of the Levitical priesthood. That's that's where priests come from. And he can't be a priest because he's not descended from the tribe of Levi, he's descended from the tribe of Judah. Well, Psalm 110 also gives us the answer. He's not going to be a Levitical priest, he's going to be a Melchizedekian priest. He's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And what that means is, As has been stated, that means that the law that says the high priest has to be from the tribe of Levi, that law has got to come to an end or Jesus can't be high priest because he's from the tribe of Judah. He doesn't qualify under any other priesthood and there is no other priesthood allowed under the law. The law had to come to an end for Jesus to be high priest. And yet... The law required Messiah to be from the tribe of Judah. So the law has to be in effect when he comes, but it has to end before he's high priest. You see the significance of that curtain being torn in two, just how powerful that is? That is the the marker in history. The death of Christ is the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. Everything shifts and changes. And with the tearing of the curtain, there is the tearing of the division between the presence of God that was only accessed by the high priest. And with that curtain, the presence of God being in the temple is gone. The Levitical priesthood that ministered there is gone. The whole temple system of sacrifice is gone. 
Because Jesus Christ has replaced the sacrifice, he's replaced the high priest, and he's replacing the covenant. Everything changes with the death of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, he was not from the tribe of Levi, and therefore nothing, no, no one in the tribe of Judah was allowed to, um, to be a priest, to minister as a priest, and so the system necessarily has to be changed. That is the main point of this passage. Verse 15. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So he's saying... Well, he's already stated that the law has ended, that the, the priesthood has gone, becomes even more evident now that our high priest has risen up and he is in the order of Melchizedek. And his basis for being a priest is not who he is descended of. That's what we studied last time. Melchizedek, if you were here last time and you remember, Melchizedek had no father and no mother listed genealogically in the Bible because it didn't matter. It didn't matter who his mother was, was, it didn't matter who his father was, because there was no requirement upon him to be a certain line of descent to be a priest. That was only introduced from the book of Exodus onwards with the giving of the law and the Levitical system. It didn't matter who his parents were. And so for Jesus, his basis of him being a priest is not carnal, fleshy, some versions will say. It's not on the basis of who his parents were, what line of descent he came from. Jesus, through his mother, is tribe of Judah, and that doesn't matter. What does matter, as we see at the end of verse 16, what does qualify him is the power of an indestructible, endless life. And that quite naturally leads us to Psalm 110. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm kind of tempted to turn there, but we've done it so many times, but maybe we should just on principle. I'll just turn briefly to, to Psalm 110. Um, it's only a short few verses, but again, the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your, that's the Lord's Lord, mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. There you have the messianic king, abundantly clear. It is the Lord's Lord, Yahweh's Lord, Yahweh's ruler, his king, the messianic king, the king of the kingdom. That is clearly who it is. And then yet in verse 4, the holy garments of verse 3 are accomplished because Yahweh has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, the Messianic king, is also priest, hence Melchizedek. He's not from that tribe that is required under Levitical system, hence the need for the order of Melchizedek. But the other word here that's crucial is the word forever. When the messianic king comes, not only will his kingdom last forever, but like Melchizedek, he will be both king and high priest, and his priesthood will last forever as well. 
He will live forever. His kingdom will live forever. His priesthood will go on forever. One final king, one final high priest. So, you don't have to be from the tribe of Levi to qualify to be Melchizedekian priest. But when the Melchizedekian priesthood comes back in, there's something you're going to have to be to qualify. Alive forever. Any volunteers? Any, any, anyone, you know, not dying? Any? Jesus resurrected from the dead. There's your qualification right there. And this is something that I've been looking into a bit more. We might talk about in the coming weeks as we go through these technical chapters. But the resurrection is never explicitly mentioned really in the book of Hebrews. But it is absolutely foundational implicitly to the whole of the argument. That Jesus qualifies to be the high priest, not on the basis of which tribe he's from, because the old covenant has ended. But rather, he is qualifying to be the high priest on the basis of his resurrection and his eternal life. That's how we know he's the high priest. You want to argue about keeping the law? You need to keep a Levitical system. You want to keep a Levitical system? You need to keep a Levitical priesthood. And you cannot do that because Jesus rose from the dead. That is the argument that he is making here and why he refers again to Psalm 110 and verse 4. Now verse 18 wraps it up for us nicely. He says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced with which we draw near to God. What we're dealing with in chapter 7 is essentially the priesthood. The Melchizedekian introduction was there in uh, the first section we did last week. This week we're looking at the transition of the priesthood and how that is completely linked to the law. And so the priesthood changes, the law changes. And next week we'll be looking, as we finish chapter 7, specifically at the priesthood of Jesus. When we come into chapter 8, he's going to deal in more detail with the not the shifting of priesthood, but the shifting of covenant from old to new. But even here in chapter 7, again, he's making it impossible for us to hold any other position other than the law is ended and gone. Because he says here very clearly that the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The old covenant law was unprofitable, useless, weak. It was incapable of doing what needed to be done with regards to redemption, with regards to salvation. The law didn't make anything perfect. It, it, it didn't bring the work of God to completion. And so it has been set aside. That word set aside, other versions will use the word disannulled, abolish, cancelling. It is a legal term. We've talked about this with regards to other words. Uh, I love reminding everybody how the word that Jesus says at the end of John's Gospel on the cross, he says the word tetelestai, it is finished. And then that word, it is finished, we understand it broadly, yeah, the work, his work's finished, it's complete. That same, that same word, completion, finishing, perfecting. 
And then, about a century or so ago, they were digging up the sand dunes of Egypt and they came across a whole bunch of papers and documents that had been preserved by the dry sands for, for a ridiculous length of time. And prior to that discovery, they thought that the Greek of the New Testament, being different from classical Greek, was, was as, as one uh, scholar called it, Holy Ghost Greek. And it was this sort of special, high and mighty language reserved for the Bible, you know, like King James English. Oh, that thou wouldst rent the heavens and come down, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and they dug up all these documents in the sands of Egypt and they discovered the exact opposite was true. That the language, the type of Greek, the Greek dialect that was used in the New Testament was common Greek. It was the, just the typical Greek that was used in regular conversations, letters, documents and what have you. And they found in the sand dunes when they came across bills that had been paid, you know how today if you had a bill and it was paid, well this is probably prior to it being done digitally, digitally but uh, it was stamped with a nice big red stamp saying paid in full and they wrote over their bills, tetelestai, it is finished. And it gives us great insight to what Jesus was saying on the cross. And here's another one of those words that when they dug up these documents they got a greater understanding of. Because this word, here translated annulled or abolished or set aside, is a legal term. And when they found legal documents where there was a contract of agreement between two parties, when that contract came to an end, it was annulled, it was set aside. This is the word that was used for it. And so this is a legal term that was used to refer to the end of a contract. And the covenant that God had with Israel has come to an end. Now I understand that there are some passages that people think are problematic in this regard. Um, there is the, uh, the term eternal that has been used occasionally in the Old Testament, but literally it means ages rather than forever and ever ne by necessity. There is, the, of course, Jesus' statement that that not one jot nor tittle of the law will, um, you know, that it will be fulfilled. But the point, and this is why we had Galatians 3 read for our reading this morning, and I'm going to turn there now to Galatians 3. The point of Galatians 3 and, and into chapter 4, the point of Hebrews 7 and 8, is that the law wasn't done away with in the sense of disregarded. It came to an end because it was fulfilled. Every jot every tittle. Every little marking of every point of every letter was fulfilled in Christ. And the law did what it needed to do. Look at what uh, Scarlett read for us this morning in Galatians 3. Before, the faith, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The concept of guardians he speaks more about as the passage goes on in chapter 4. But the, the background to this is this, is that in Greek society, a child would often be raised by people within the household, uh, slaves if you like, but uh, sometimes paid for, but people who worked in the household who would often raise the children for them until they got to adulthood. 
and the guardians, pretty much today to some degree, although to a much greater degree in that time, but Today, you might have children who, if both parents work, and the child might be spend its time with a, another person, a au pair, a nanny, a, a, a child uh, carer of some sort. And if you have one person, rather than going to a building where there's a group of people, if, as some people do, you have one person, most hours of that day will be spent with that third party than with either parent. Now, that's not to comment on that situation, other than to say that was what happened under Greek society, that there was somebody who had a specific job to raise that child, to train them, to teach them, to train them in, in Greek philosophy and, and what have you of that era, and to train up that child. And when that child hit adulthood, that guardian had no authority or relationship or bearing. They weren't the parent. They were doing a job, and their job has now come to an end. A closer example, uh, illustration perhaps for today would be how when uh, children go through their, their school years, they'll get to their senior year and they'll graduate. And then after that, you don't get the kids going back again and, oh, I, I really like my school, I just want to keep going, you know. You've graduated, you're done, it's finished. And that's what's happened with, with the Guardian. And it's just... Very clear to me what Galatians, what Paul says in Galatians here, and that he says, the law, the Old Testament law, was the guardian until Christ comes. And now that Christ has come, there's no need for a guardian anymore. So the law was fulfilled, it was completed, it accomplished its purpose. And its purpose was to prepare the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. And once the Messiah has come, the law is no longer required. It's not needed. And therefore, it has been done away with. It is no longer in effect. It's not that it failed. It's not like the truth contained within the law is not eternal in its own way. But it means that the rules of the law no longer are in effect. They're rules that have been annulled and brought to an end, and that is what that legal term in verse 18 means. And so, the imperfect, useless, weak, unprofitable law is not required anymore. What it was able to do, it did. And now it's not able to do what needs to be done. So what does need to be done? Well, that's the one hand. The one hand is the old law gone. But the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So we don't have the old covenant, the old law, the old Levitical system. But what we do have, what we do have is a new covenant. Chapter 8 will deal with that in detail. And it's a better hope and it's introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, he's already said that in Christ, because of Christ, because he's our high priest, we can draw near to God. Now, you need to understand the terminology here, okay? In the Old Covenant, how did people draw near to God? Well, if you lived a thousand miles away from Jerusalem and you wanted to draw near to God, you had a thousand mile journey to do. Because that's where God was. He was there in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in Jerusalem. So you wanted to draw near to God, that's how you, draw, you would draw near. 
This is why I think it's absolutely ridiculous that there is a modern worship song that says, you know, what we're singing, better is one day in your court than thousands elsewhere. I understand that's in the Psalms, but it was. The idea was we come and we draw near to God and that's the best place to be. But God's not there anymore. He dwells in us. We're the temple. So that song is essentially saying that every day is wonderful because we're continually in the presence of God. And at the end of that passage that Scarlett read for us in Galatians, it's kind of clear in that what he says is, he says, you know, the law has come to an end, the guardianship is over. He said, so God sent forth his son, chapter 4 and verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, born under the law. She needed, the law needed to be in place to bring us to the Messiah because he had to be of the right genealogy to be Messiah to redeem those who were under the law. So the law had to exist for him to come, but then he comes to take away the law, to redeem us from the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So in contrast, and this is a crucial point, in contrast to being under the law, we're now sons. Israel, in the Old Testament, was described as the son of God. Hosea is a good example of that. Because if you were a Gentile nation and you wanted to worship the true God, where did you have to go? You had to go to Israel. God was in his son, in Israel. But now, he says, you become sons. And because of you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The giving of the spirit is something that was promised under the new covenant. And the new covenant specifically contrasted that with the old covenant. You don't have this under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, the spirit of God is going to indwell you. And so the spirit of his son is in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Israel used to be where people went to find God. Now they can come to us as the church generally, but each of us individually as well. Because God dwells in us. His spirit is within us. And so we can say, Father, because we are his sons. We are the children of God. He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, what we have is we have an entirely different experience than the Old Testament believers. We are new covenant believers. The old covenant system, the laws, the priesthood, all of it is over. It's gone. It's finished. The line was drawn in the sand with the death of Christ on Calvary. And now we are new covenant believers. And the distinction is, the key distinction is, is that we now have the Holy Spirit within our hearts empowering us. We are now his sons. The sonship is not something that's given to a nation as a whole. It's given to each of us as individuals. We've taken over that role. And so, with the death of Christ, it all comes to an end, the priesthood comes to an end, and we now have one high priest, who by his spirit is our high priest to us as temples, as we represent him to the world. And doesn't that make 
verse 19, drawing near to God, a completely different thing. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't come to a church or to a specific place. But rather, the drawing near to God is something that we can do wherever we are because he dwells in us constantly. Well, the old covenant is done and it's dusted and we're going to see in a few weeks just how much clearer that is. But uh, we now have... Uh, the privilege of living under the new covenant. And I pray and I hope that we day to day would remember that. That for millennia, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of God would have loved to have what we have today. We are in such a privileged position. They would make a journey on foot or on horseback of hundreds of miles to draw near to God and his spirit indwells us identifies us as sons of God and yet we can't pray and yet we can't draw near in his word we are the most privileged of people and we ignore it, we forget it, and we disregard it. Shame on us. Let us this week again be rejoicing at the privileges we have under the new covenant. And may we be thankful for our great high priest. And may we draw near to him constantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that that we are those who are no longer under guardians, no longer sacrificing animals, but that we are those who are redeemed. Redeemed as sons. Redeemed from under the law and the system that couldn't accomplish anything because there was no empowerment. But now we have your spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead indwells us that we might live holy lives glorifying your name. Lord, may we do that. May we walk in the spirit that we've been given and no longer walk in the flesh. May we live lives devoted to you. For your glory we pray. Amen.